Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Richard Hill, Managing Editor, all-round good guy, Howdy, Richard. Howdy, Matt. In an always way, I'm still here. Uh, <laughs> although I must admit, there are a couple of times when, when I haven't been here. So oh, that's uh, right. Uh, that's right. So the hyperbole... Maybe I, sh- I shouldn't say as always then, should I? Yes, on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> but but a, but a beautiful occasion here. We're, we're, we're really talking to, uh, looking at something which appears on the surface to be extremely different and unusual uh, and strange. But actually, it's not at all. It, but it is something fresh that uh, will do it. Tell us a bit about who we yeah. are seeing today. We're going to go across and talk to Dr. Megan Connell. Now, she's a board-certified licensed psychologist practicing virtually in more than 20 states. She lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. And she's an avid geek and gamer and is passionate about teaching others how to use role-playing games in therapy. We are going to learn from someone who's done a lot of work on this, how Dungeons and Dragons can be an avenue for psychotherapeutic change. Magnificent. Why not? Everything, everything has the capacity to have some benefit. And uh, it's great to see someone really working and researching on on how to make this possible. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yes. So we're going to talk to Megan about her her new book, Tabletop Role-Playing Therapy, A Guide for the Clinician Game Master. And let us look and see what we can learn. And remember, you can see this on uh, our YouTube channel. So you can see us talking to to uh, the wonderful Megan. And also, we will have a chapter in the magazine. Uh, I'm expecting it to be in the May magazine. So don't miss that. Fantastic. Okay, let's go across to North Carolina. Megan, hello and welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. So great to meet you. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, Megan Richard here. Uh, it, it, it was almost irresistible to, to have you here. We, we, we see a lot of great books and, and a lot of great interesting books. Uh, but then again, we've suddenly come across something which is, um, well, I don't know whether I can say it's unique, but it certainly is interesting. And I think something that, uh, that we need to, now we've We've mentioned this in our introduction. Tabletop role-playing therapy, a guide for the clinician game master. Now, everybody just sit there and savour that for a moment or two. Uh, But gaming, uh, all kinds of different types of of gaming. I mean, I just looking as we go through this thing, chapter three of why use tabletop role-playing games. And that's a great place to start. What got you into this idea of of applying what we're doing, what people are doing now, nowadays, what's popular, what's current, um, and and uh, giving that an application to uh, to therapeutic benefit? Yeah, how this came about for me was I was playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I had two games going on, one with my family and one with some friends that are people I met online and who later became very, very good friends of mine. And uh, I had two different characters. And as I was house cleaning one day, letting my mind wander, as you do, and I was going, well, these two very different characters both came from my brain. 
they have to have something in common. And so I was really like trying to go through it. It's like this thing, no, this thing, no. And when I finally figured out what they had in common, I had this like sinking feeling where I'm like, oh no, that's my issue. That's what I need to work on. <laughs> and, you know, in therapy, we know so often the things that we need to work on the most are behind like all these amazing defense mechanisms, right? Of like, hey, have you ever thought you have a trust issue? It's like, no, I don't, I don't know. You have a trust, you know, it's like the deflection and stuff and we can't see it. But somehow by just creating these characters and playing around and getting to live in their skin for a little while, it really gave me that insight to be able to look at it in a way where I didn't get defensive. I got a little like, ooh, I need that. there's some work I need to do there. But I, as soon as I had that realization, I was like, wow, I want to use this as a therapeutic tool. And then very serendipitously, uh, Dr. Boca Mazzaro from uh, Take This, who was working at Aspiring Youth uh, in Seattle, where they were using tabletop gaming to teach social skills to kids on the autism spectrum. And so he and I connected and we've done some trainings together now and are good friends. And uh, he was the first one to really talk about how they were applying using tabletop games in this way. And so I took it a step further and actually started doing like more for formal therapy. So um, social skills groups are more like education-based groups, which are needed and are important. Um, but I was doing more like process of like, let's talk about anxiety. Let's talk about depression. You know, let's make, let's give your depression, you know, statistics, you know, monster stats so we can go fight it and thinking about what makes it strong and what makes it weak. And uh, it, it's been a blast. It has been so much fun to do. Is is this is this kind of like sand play for adults? In a lot of ways, it is. It, it's a way to talk about our issues without talking about our issues, hmm. right? And I go into this in the book that I um, I hypothesize that one of the big keys with this is the fact that we have a character. And so it's not me, it's my character. I don't have a problem with you. My character does, right? Or I don't have issues with trust. My character does. And it, it, that kind of little bit of distance gets us a way to see into these things and be willing to play into this more. You know, yeah. it, role-playing has been a huge part of therapy for so long. I mean, like really started picking up like in the 1970s with psychodrama. Um, you know, it has kind of continued on. And even in all of the training programs that you go through, right, there's so often where it's, okay, we're going to role play. Who's going to play the client? Who's going to play the therapist? And I don't know. It's always awkward. It's always terrible. Right? And, it's, but wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I mean, like when you're role playing yourself, right, it feels weird. Right. It, it feels awkward because I've definitely run those social skills groups before where I'm like, OK, you know, hey, Richard, get up here. Let's role play you meeting somebody at a party. And instantly, like the performance anxiety comes in. It's like, ah, I don't know. Right. But if I hand you a character sheet, it's like, OK, you're going to play, you know, the hero Balbid. And Balbid is coming into this you know, banquet and needs to introduce himself to some nobility. Now he comes from a humble background. So let's talk about what would, how would Balbid do this? And let's, let's give some things to do. And now all of a sudden it's, it's not you, you're Balbid. It's like, oh, I could do this now. And, and it seems that having that character lowers that bar and gets the buy-in to happen. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm guessing that as you, as you take on the persona of a certain character, you can't help but have you know, the characteristics of yourself, you know, sort of come out. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe if you're a very skilled actor, you can sort of mask everything, but. No, no, no. I'm glad you, but because you'll love this, Megan. I was a professional actor for 25 years. 
And oh. then I decided, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't famous enough or rich enough, so I better do something else. <laughs> so I became, became this. But I actually did a workshop uh, at the Ericsson conference a few years back uh, called Almost Everything I Know in Psychotherapy I Learned in Acting School. And oh, that's wonderful. Oh, it, it was great. Everybody was hopeless at, at, at it, which was great because they were all trying to think about things too much. But I think one of the the, the things I can just add in, in what I found in my experience was with this role playing is because uh, people would say, oh, what, what do you do? Oh, you know, when I was acting, they say, oh, you know, you become these characters. And uh, and yes, you mold them out of your uh, possibilities. I mean, we have we play different characters of ourselves, different aspects of ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. And what's beautiful about it and what's really therapeutic about it is that when the show ended, who do you go back to? Uh, so when you're doing that little role play as the Balthazar and the, the the things, and then you say, okay, well, now we'll finish. Uh, it's that, and sometimes it's conscious, but it's also uh, in, intuitive and instinctive. You just then return saying, well, I'm not that this that you know that sort of uh, splendiferous and I'm not that uh, arrogant and I'm not that this and it teaches you about yourself now it I must sort of say that there are some actors who did find it very difficult to find who themselves were Peter Sellers is a great example and he was is actually well known for for a, a, a talk show interview where he wouldn't go on because he didn't know who he was and who he should be oh, wow. and so he went on as one of his characters uh, in a in a play so you know, not everybody is sane, but um, I just, yeah, I just want to chuck that in. And it was an enormous way. And I kept, I kept having to rethink about who Richard was uh, each Mm -hmm. time, each time I did a character. So here I can Mm -hmm. see these, this opportunity to expand yourself, but then contract yourself back again. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And there's this thing where it's like, if we're way over on one side of something, a lot of times I see people make a character who's way on the other side. So like uh, my clients who are very anxious want to make characters who are very outgoing and not afraid to talk. And like it gets them into a lot of the characters into a lot of trouble in the game. But what's sort of interesting is over the course of the game, the character starts to move towards the middle, as does the player. Yeah. And so it's like the it's this really interesting thing. And I actually I asked my players questions about this of like, what would you teach your character and what would your character teach you? Very gestalty. Like, oh, very gestalty. And yeah, yeah. It's so fascinating, though, because so often we are playing things that we need. And it's just that really interesting tie-in of like, yeah, like, I I need to feel more confident. I need to do, do these things. And it, mm-hmm. it's really powerful when we get to, you know, step into the shoes of that character for a few hours a week and just practice that skill set in an environment where there's no real, con- you know, no real world consequences. Like your character might end up in jail, but that's okay. That's a, just a new story arc that you got to play through. Yeah, it, it's something Matt, that we we used to say in acting when we did that was that actually you can be very very uh, shy and very very inhibited and very constrained. But then they would go on stage and they'd be extraordinary. And I mean, we've seen this in lots of professional people, but I had friends and I think, wow, where did that come from? And it is an incredibly safe place to be. So when we talk mm-hmm. about creating a safe place and a place of rapport, it's incredibly safe because it starts and finishes. It has um, themes and frameworks uh, and it has everybody who's in the same difficult pie 
uh, of 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 improvisation or perhaps of uh, doing a particular script, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's one of the best things. So when I looked at this your work, I thought, oh wow, yeah, we're creating a humanistic. Because uh, we, as you say, Matt, we've got sand play and we've got metaphors and we've got art therapy, but a humanistic form of uh, safe space. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is really beneficial to using tabletop gaming as a form of therapy, as opposed to something like psychodrama, where you're kind of just in it and you're doing the whole, you know, improv scene and you're playing through it, is we can pause the narrative. So we're talking in our voices, you know, we're like, all right, and I'm going to come in and smash the door down and then wait a second, there was a door here, right? Or am I just to remember? And so that that's really helpful because I've had plenty of times where there's role-playing going on between the player characters and the players are kind of pausing and talking with each other and saying stuff like, hey, I, I understand my character's being very standoffish to your character right now. It's not your character. It's not you. I want you to understand, like, there's something going on with my character. And, and then the other player's like, do you want us to probe your character, you know, like ask them more questions and get them to open up, or are you not ready to have that part of your backstory come out yet? And, you know, so it's this wonderful thing of so often, like we've got all of this anxiety going on in our head and we, um, it just, it gets us completely stopped, right? We can't go forward. We can't go on. But when we're having these role play moments, this, cause you know, we can have these interactions and kind of stop and talk about it. Like, um, uh, interaction between two of my uh, players that was just <laughs> really phenomenal was uh, <clears throat> this one player was playing a rogue and was getting the party into trouble, like almost got the whole party arrested out <laughs> of trouble. And there was this very lawful cleric in the group who was getting very frustrated. But the two players were laughing so much at how their characters were bouncing off of each other. Mm-hmm. And like, the you know, and they were able to talk and just this character is being like, my character is so frustrated with your character right now. And the other one's like, I get it. I get it. It's okay. <laughs> and what do we want to do about this? Because yeah, my character kind of needs to just to shape up and how are we going to take care of that? And so it's this, it, it's this amazing thing where this game is also teaching conflict resolution. Um, there was a very early study, case study done in, I think published in 86, where they were using tabletop gaming with uh, a youth group for like at youth or at risk youth in New York City. And the person who was running the games noticed that the kids who played D&D were learning conflict resolution and were having much better relationships with their peers. And if there was a disagreement, it was much less likely to escalate into a physical fight and they could talk it out and they could figure things out. And they were suggesting at, even at that time that it should be looked at as a form of therapy. Yeah, so this is so much, uh, it just reminds me of rough and tumble, early play. We're supposed to get in there, find out what goes, what works and what doesn't work. But we're kind of restricting those and we're we're pulling back the capacity for us to be able to make mistakes in life. Yeah, yeah. It, and like you said, I think you mentioned nat- natural earlier, Richard. It just feels like this would be a, a way more natural way to explore um, what's what's going on inside of us. Yeah, is it something that it's particularly for people who like these sorts of things, or or do, do can anybody? Uh, I mean, there might be some people who really hate it. Obviously, we do things accordingly, but um, is it only for those, or, or or do people like learning? I I think lots of people can benefit from it. I, yeah, just as you mentioned, Richard, like people have to be willing to play 
if they're not willing to play, it's not going to work very well. Um, but I have seen it work for just a multitude of people and really like it's engaging, it's fun, it, it pulls people in. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to teach people how to play and mm. to bring them in and mm. say like, you know, here's here's what this game is. It look you've got a character sheet. There's a lot of numbers on it. Don't worry. We'll walk you through it. It's easy. I hand them a D20, so the 20-sided dice. And say, that's the one you're going to roll. Anytime I'm asking for a roll, roll that one, and then I'll show you what a number to add to it. And it, it's amazing. Like, after two or three weeks, people have got it. They, no real issue with playing. And uh, it, what's interesting to me, too, is so many people will come in and, and be like, okay, oh, so if you're doing therapeutic gaming, you you probably don't have any combat. There's no fighting. It's like, well, no, there's still quite a bit of fighting. <laughs> you know, right. the, applying the great sword is sometimes, you know, the way they solve a problem in the game, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's about feeling powerful. It's about, you know, feeling like you can make a difference. And yeah, all there's... those things are so metaphoric anyway, even mm-hmm. even in the games. I mean, I I, I love the, the Big Bang Theory, the Federalist yeah. TV show. I mean, they're always playing it. And you're sitting there watching it as a as an audience member going, oh, wow, look, look, at, they're revealing their characters. And, oh, look, Sheldon actually does get a bit cranky. And so... These other qualities, exactly as you say, bringing out qualities which are hidden in the sort mm-hmm. of the day-to-day scenario of of modern life. Uh, so have you got any sort of cases, any sort of particular examples of, of someone who were, you know, how their, their resolutions dawned on them in the framework of the game? My favorite one is from one of my very first groups that I was running. It was uh, I. It was the pilot group where I was essentially going. I don't know if this is therapeutic or not, or if it's just fun. And this would be was a person I was working on and trying to help them set boundaries and stand up for themselves. And uh, they were very pleasing to all of their friends. And uh, after one of our gaming sessions, they came up to me at the end and they were like, "Hey, can I talk to you real quick?" I'm like, "Sure, what's up?" And they're like. So my friends were asking me for a ride somewhere that I wasn't going and I didn't want to go. And I and this has been a thing they'd been working on is they always said yes to their friends because they were afraid their friends wouldn't like them if they said no. And they're like, I felt myself about to say yes. And then I thought about my D&D character. And I realized she would say no. So I said no. <sighs> and that was huge that was such a huge benefit where that we had that crossover where they saw the benefit from their character and could take in the things that their character has said and done and go okay yeah i can do this too yeah so um i'm just wondering um because what's going through my head at the moment is so you're talking dungeons and dragons uh, mostly is it is it just that game or are there other games can we talk a little bit about some of the pragmatics of um how, as a therapist, I even start to approach, you know, the, apart from buying your book, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and buying the game. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, you know, you don't even need to buy the game. They, oh, Wizards cool. of the Coast has all their basic rules out for free. And right. you can get okay. most of this, like you can get a game running for free at no cost. And there's so many people, you know, fans of the game who have made monsters and made other stats and you can pull all that stuff online for free. So it's, and you don't even need to buy dice. You can, there's free online dice rollers. So like it, it's really not expensive point of entry. Now, like any hobby, once you get into it, it can get really expensive. (laughs) Um, But there are hundreds, if not thousands of different role-playing systems out there. Um, 
I use D&D for two reasons. Um, number one, it's the system I know. I know the rules. I know the spells. I've spent a lot of time reading through the rule books. I understand it. I understand the mechanics of it and how it works. And so I don't have to think about it as I'm playing and running it. Um, the second reason is because my groups that I run for therapy are oftentimes with people who have social skills, um, not necessarily issues, but there are a lot of folks who are on the autism spectrum, ADHD, social anxieties, histories of bullying, and just having difficulties with making new friends. And so since D&D is the most widely played tabletop role-playing game, when they go into new situations, like if they move, if they start college, um, going off to a new job or location, it's fairly easy to find people who play Dungeons and Dragons, to go to a game store and jump into an Adventures League night, to find a D&D club, and to start playing the game. And so having that basic understanding of the rules and everything is really helpful. There are lots of different systems out there. I have uh, the Avatar system back here. Um, one of my favorites is actually called Outbreak Undead, where you use your stats uh, to make the character. You answer questions about how physically fit you are, what kind of special skills you have, and it makes a character sheet for you, which I think is really cool. But it's not as widely played. And so as cool as that system is, if I'm wanting to give people a tool that they can use to meet other people in new locations, it's not as effective as something like D&D. Right, right. And so we're talking tabletop games. Are we? Uh, is this something that we could do um, on a virtual platform, you know, in a, in a virtual space? Uh, is it as, as, as effective? Can we do the same sort of thing? Yes. It, yes, you can. Um, it does seem to be effective, but not as quickly. Um, in doing the research for my book, I was reading uh, Irvin Yellum, uh, and I'm forgetting his co-author, uh, released a new edition of their their role-playing, or it's not role-playing, sorry, uh, group therapy book. And they did have a chapter on virtual therapy. And so one of the blessings of the pandemic is it's given us a lot of research on virtual therapy, which we know for individual works just as well as face-to-face. -face. Uh, and actually for some diagnoses, slightly better because people will come to therapy uh, where they might not otherwise. Uh, for group therapy, it still is effective, but it is not as effective as face-to-face. -face. Uh, and this is anecdotal evidence, but when I've run groups virtually, that's what I've seen as well. My sessions tend to be 10 weeks. Um, the growth that I would see typically around week six, I was seeing at week eight for virtual groups. It's easier to stand back or to, um, especially if, if you're in a virtual space and you're using avatars, you could, you could easily, you know, just hide yourself, I guess. Yeah. And well, and also the crosstalk and like quick conversations off to the side, everything like that can, that can happen in a face-to-face -face group where like, if I'm not understanding something on my character sheet or I have an idea, I can kind of lean over to my neighbor and be like, Hey, does this thing work the way I think it works? What would you, you know, what would you suggest here? You know, they can have that quick sidebar conversation and not disturb the rest of the group. You can't do that in a virtual space because it's just the nature of how video conferencing works. Now the, one of the, the things as I look through, there's a lot of chapters that you, you cover a lot of ground and uh, maybe this is this jumps in was sort of in the second part of the book, uh, and I was very pleased to see it that you you have a chapter on ethics on the, yes. the, the ethical framework. And can you give us a little bit of an under uh, an insight into what you were discovering there? Well, that was me pushing for that chapter. Uh, ah. the, Norton didn't ask for that. Um, it was sort of a pet peeve of mine when I was in grad school and reading all these different books that they didn't explicitly talk. There was like, be sure to be ethical. 
on using this. And it's like, can you tell me how? <laughs> can you tell me what to think about? Like, what are the concerns that would have? Um, and that's my own personal anxiety coming out, right? But I think it's important to think it through and like to, you know, we say document your ethical reasoning. Well, what are the ethics codes that I should be thinking about? What what are the concerns that can come up? And so I try to go through the the codes. You know, it, it is skewed towards the American, um, so the American Psychological Association, the American so- social workers and uh, counselors. But I go through those three ethics codes and talk through, you know, what we need to consider, how to think about it, what and what to do in talking about informed consent, confidentiality, you know, main, working within your bonds of, bounds of competence, how you can engage competency, what that looks like in a developing field, because tabletop gaming as a therapy tool is still developing where there's no like official credentialing body for it yet. Um, there's three different uh, main schools that I know of that are teaching it. Um, but like, we don't have a unified, like, this is what it takes to be somebody who's certified in using this tool as therapy. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. And, and I would say that a lot of those um, ethical um, considerations are, are they're fairly generic across the Western world. So there is, but it but it is that uh, that other aspect because a few chapters later on, it was another one that that just sort of caught my sort of practical, you know, sort of functional eye, which was documentation. Yeah. Um, I mean, there you are, you know, someone comes along and looks at the notes and saying, well, they were slicing them with a sword on the east plane with the cannons firing. <laughs> and they go, hello, I think the therapist is. So, but, but that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Is it, it's a bit, it's a different dialogue uh, or, 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 yeah, anyway, I just, it's different. No, it, it is because in, in a lot of ways it's translating it, right? Because like, um, so I have the group coming together facing a, a dragon. And then one of the people comes up with a really unique idea and then they roll some damage and, you know, we move on to the next turn. But what happened there was we had somebody who engaged in reading comprehension, creative problem solving, thinking outside the box, standing up for their own idea and advocating for themselves and then trying to navigate that solution, right? Like that's a lot of therapeutic stuff happening in that in that moment there. And so kind of understanding what's going on in the brain and what's going on behaviorally. Um, I like to do something. So in uh, Dungeons and Dragons, when you get into combat, you roll initiatives to see who goes in what turn. And I've done this before where I have my players pair up together and their characters go together. And so they can basically do power moves where they go off of each other. And so now what we're working on in those moments are teamwork, planning, coming together and getting in the creative problem solving is a huge part. And so it's kind of understanding what is the behavior that I'm seeing at the table and how do I translate that into the note? And what is that going to look like? Right. And and what sort of balance is there between actually playing the game and then saying, okay, so this is what I saw happening and sort of breaking things down and and being yeah, therapeutic with that information. Yeah. Well, so in the, are you asking for in the notes or in the games? No, um, well, just in the, in the therapy in general. Yeah. In, in the therapy in general. Yeah. So in the therapy, oftentimes for the groups that I run, it doesn't look all that different from a group playing at their home, mm-hmm. right? We are sitting around a table, tell, talking in silly voices, rolling dice and telling a story together. But we have these moments where we pause. And we talk about what's going on. Um, I think one of my 
favorite is a weird way to say this because it was a very difficult session, but this most really powerful session came up where my players made a choice that I was not expecting and I rolled with and they got them their characters into a really bad situation. And so I gave them, they had three branches to get out, but neither, none of those branches were good choices. Some of them had better consequences than others, but they were all difficult, bad choices. And we had a long time of processing and talking about how that's kind of life. It's not that life gives us this really good choice with all these good things happening and a bad choice with bad things. It's like, well, pluses and minuses over here, pluses and minuses over here, and pluses and minuses over here. We got to figure out which one to pick. And helping to process through that and think through and talk through it all. And, And it was probably one of the most powerful sessions I think I've ever had. I mean, like my players were all crying, which maybe isn't a good thing. But. Yeah, no, but that's but that's a great realization and a great philosophical understanding, but particularly in, in sort of the Western world that says, you know, you can have everything and you can do anything if you just, if you just, um, I don't know what you have to do because it doesn't work for me. But the essence <laughs> of it is there is always something you can create. This is some of the stuff that Matt and I are talking about. So they say, why do, why do you, why do you want to learn all this stuff? And it's like here, why do you want to learn all this game? Is because with knowledge and information, that always gives you fodder for creativity and for mm-hmm. expanding and for finding something else. And uh, and sometimes we're not looking for what's hidden. We're not looking for what um, uh, is being suppressed or oppressed. We're actually looking for something new. We're actually looking mm-hmm. for discovering. And that's a great realization. Life, uh, I mean, it's everywhere in the in the, in the yeah. metaphors. You know, life deals you the cards, play with the cards you're dealt, and yada, yada, yada. But um, to have it, people confront it, uh, uh, but through the metaphor, through the the gestalt of the of the game is is just so. And then everyone's crying and and having wonderful realizations individually is a beautiful thing. It's yeah. extraordinary. No. Look, I I'm I'm loving this idea, and I think you've discovered one of the most fun ways to do therapy. But yeah. I've got a number of well, I'm, I'm particularly older clients, and I'm pretty sure if I said let's do some you know tabletop. Gaming. Yes. Can we do some gin rummy? They'll therapy? be asking for a referral <laughs> to someone else. Um, maybe not mm-hmm. so much with with um, some of the younger clients, even though D and D has been around like forever. Um, so, what are you finding in terms of you know the age of client? Are you are you able to you know sort of connect more with the younger people, or are you? Is it all age groups? What's happening? It's interesting because it is mostly younger people, but not for the reason you think. Um, The reason that it seems to be mostly younger people is because of scheduling. Um, Anybody who plays regular Dungeons and Dragons or other tabletop gaming knows that the ultimate big, bad, evil guy of your campaign is the schedule. (laughs) People cannot get a single night together. Um, Because of the nature of kids who are in school, they have very kind of rigid set schedules. So if it's Wednesday night's therapy night, Wednesday night's therapy night, and every Wednesday they come. Whereas for adults, if Wednesday night's therapy night, it's like, well, Wednesday night's therapy night, unless my partner needs me to go and do this errand, then I have to go do that. Or work just called and I have to stay late tonight. You know, so like their boundaries as far as their time um, are a lot more flexible. So I've had plenty of adults who are very interested in joining the groups, but getting them to consistently show up to the groups has been the big challenge. Right, right. And and does it like, you know, I I tell my wife, you know, I've, 
going to go and, you know, play a game with Megan um, on Saturday night, or, or I've got a an appointment with, you know, Professor whoever. You know, going and playing a game doesn't maybe seem as important as having, um, you know, a... Good question. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. it, it does a little bit too, I think. And like, it's... The, st- the way I do therapy, it's sort of... Um, Sneaky therapy, I think, is a lot of the ways, because I've had several clients who were like, I don't think I've learned anything in in therapy. And I'll be like, well, let's talk about that. Let's reflect on where you were. And then as they start talking through it, they're like, oh, my God, I've learned a ton. It's like, yeah, it's just been kind of sneaky, you know, slowly getting in there. And the same thing in the therapy groups is that people grow and learn a ton, but they're not necessarily seeing it week to week. And this is where like having some measures, having some feedback can be very helpful to so that they can see that. It's one of the reasons why I often do um, a weekly email to the parents as well, because the parents, all they hear is like, oh my gosh, we slayed a dragon tonight. It was amazing. And they're like, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. why is this therapy? Yeah. <laughs> so, so explaining but- that through that lens can be really important too. Yes, it's, it's actually a, a fundamental error. Uh, in people's understanding of the nature of of what play is, and because uh, I do a lot of work in there, I have to talk about curiosity and curiosity for play as a way of discovering information. It's a serendipitous way of discovering information, mm-hmm. and and we do have this cultural thing of that you go to learn things, you you go somewhere and you learn mm-hmm. stuff, as different from you just um, whatever. And then stuff comes to you. And I I can actually uh, really attune into what you're saying is that it's it's not the the stuff that comes into consciousness as a sort of I've learned this. But then Mm -hmm. in reflection, you go, oh, my gosh, I've learned that and I've learned, learned the other thing, which is the wonder and joy of learning through play. Yeah, it's that discovery, right? It's that eureka moment that you get. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm also wondering, um, in terms of numbers too, does it like, does it matter how big or small the group is? Does that, I mean, it obviously changes the dynamic, um, but what have you found? Yeah. Yes. I'm curious about that too. Yeah. You can do with just one player, um, one player in the game master, obviously. So it's called duet play. Um, that can be fine, but it, 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 I, find more fun with more people in the room i try to do a minimum of three and a maximum of six for my groups Uh, i find with six players i like to have an even number in case i need them to pair off or divide up or something um but then also if a couple people don't show up one week because of a scheduling something or illness uh there's still enough players to continue the story which is helpful um yeah much much more than six it's hard to give people the, the attention that they need and to make sure that we're giving everybody their little moment in the spotlight and their moment to shine. Yeah. And the, and the other question is, do you use this in conjunction with traditional talk therapy as well, or sometimes? Sometimes. Um, most everybody in my groups are also in uh, individual therapy as well. Sometimes they do a little bit of a hiatus from the individual therapy while they're going through the my group. Um, but no, they, it's usually done together. It's very rare the player that I get who isn't in therapy as well. And yeah. therapy was not necessarily with me, it was somebody else. Yeah, but but it's stimulating their attention to stimulating. Uh, uh, I'm it'd be fascinating to do a, a, an in-depth study, I'm sure, you know, when someone gives us $10 million, we'll all do it. But yeah. you know, just just that passageway where, where therapeutic uh, elements 
in their co-therapeutic experiences, uh, you know, where it's blending in, where where some are supporting others, where it's teaching, where because that's what's the fascinating thing when we look at uh, the, the the therapeutic uh, examinations. The stuff that happens outside of the therapeutic experience is mm-hmm. as important, if not more important, than what happens actually in that you know, in the, the one-hour therapy session. So uh, your the contribution you could be making in the additions uh, can be uh, uh, at this stage unmeasurable, but can be enormous. Yeah, exactly. And this is why, like, I one of the things I push in my book when I'm talking about the need for research is, like, we need qualitative first because we don't know what to measure and we don't know exactly what to ask about yet. And so that's the one of the biggest values that qualitative research can have for us is it starts to tell us what to pay attention to and what to start measuring in our later quantitative data. And we just, there's so little research um, on tabletop gaming. Um, it's, I say it way too many times in my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very testing thing. I'm doing some work in, in another area, which is similar. You know, we needing to understand, uh, you know, grounded theory research that comes in and just goes in just to see what it is. Uh, mm-hmm. But you, of course, you started the ball rolling, and uh, which is so beautiful, and and got it. Uh, there's reference points and and frameworks that that hopefully will trigger all kinds of of, of wonderful stuff. So so if you had your little magic wand and you had your ten million dollars that given to you by the fabulous benefactor, don't we all want it? <laughs> uh, what are you know sort of the the, the top two or three uh, things on your wish list for where this is going? We need just a, a very, we need the most fundamental study of them all, which is the simplest design, which is, you know, three different groups of people. One group goes through treatment as usual. One is your control group who doesn't get treatment. And one goes through a therapeutic gaming group and pre-test, mid-test, post-test, six-month follow-up just to see what happens. Like I think yeah. that that is just so valuable. And then also just comparing therapeutically you know, minded run by a therapist, game, you know, tabletop games compared to a very skilled game master running a game. And what what do we see? What growth happens? What insights do the players get on themselves and what they need to work on versus not? Like just if we can just have that little bit of data that can show... I, I have full confidence I was going to show that tabletop gaming is a very effective form of therapy and <clears throat> at least as effective as treatment as usual, if not slightly more effective that it's going to get, you know, that's going to open the door for more, more millions of dollars to come in for more research and oh, study and design. Thank you, Benefactor. Keep it coming. No, that's, yes. they're, they're, yeah, they're really interesting. And, and uh, uh, you know, well said. Um, and and I think it's it's probably, you know, the sort of thing we, we say so often, you know, how is it affecting people? Uh, and then in that therapeutic thing, what is the role of the therapist? Um, you know, mm-hmm. what, what is the effectiveness that the, the therapist brings in that interpersonal sort of co-creative framework? Uh, so, you know, okay, anyone listening, uh, with after they've given me $10 million, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll send 10 off to you too, maybe excellent. Yeah. Fantastic. No, I, I would love, love to do research on it. And I guess also my big study that I really want to see happen that probably needs more than $10 million is examining what happens in the brain when we're talking about game memories. Yeah. Because there's a very interesting thing. If you ever talk to tabletop gamers, when you ask them about their favorite game memory, 
They don't talk about their character. They say, uh, they don't go like, oh, it was when our characters went and stormed that bridge and had to fight the, you know, fight through the trolls to get to the other side. It's like, oh, it was that time you and I had to go across that bridge and fight those trolls. And do you remember how you had that big epic move where you did the flip in the air and then I dove under the legs and kind of caught you and we did that big, you know, move off to the side. And we're using that first person. We know it didn't actually happen, but we talk about it as though it was us. And that's yeah. that is so fascinating to me, and I want to know on that neuropsych level what's going on there, yeah. and the and the extent of the interpersonal as different from the the, the sort of just the storytelling. The it's actually mm-hmm. that 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 personal interaction. Um, uh, yeah, we we are speculating. Matt and I are speculating in our heads, but we'll wait for the research. Yes. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. So as, as we wrap up, Megan, any um, sort of final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners? If you're curious about playing, go. There are so many amazing live play shows. Um, a fairly short one that is easy to digest is uh, Critical Role's Age of Calamity. It's four sessions. And it is some of the best role-playing that I've ever seen and an amazing story that will get you crying by the end. But it can really show you what this is like, just seeing people sitting around a table telling a story and working together to tell a story. So go out and play. We need to play. It is vital for our lives. (laughs) And that's so beautiful. And that's what I love about it. It is returning to storytelling, that wonderful thing where we all finish our day, sit around the fire and tell stories. Mm -hmm. One day. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Megan. We really enjoyed having you here and we really enjoyed you introducing the possibilities uh, of all yeah. these things here. And we look forward to lots of people being interested in your work and uh, lots of uh, benefactors dropping dollars down the uh, research <laughs> chute. <laughs> that Absolutely. would be lovely. That would be so lovely. Thank you, <laughs> Thank so, you so much for much. having me. Thanks, Megan. Gee, she was interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That was so interesting. It was so interesting. It's a beautiful lens. Uh, mm. It's a beautiful mm. lens. And it, and it always has been interesting. Now, I don't think I've ever played Dungeons and Dragons, but mm. I've certainly played story games and, and yeah. things of the, of the frame. And yeah, look, it's, it's, it sounds fantastic. I have to get the book and, and have a read and, and an awful lot of fun as well. I was kind of a bit jealous. You know, I'd like to be a game master as well as a therapist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and is, an avenue for therapeutic change through fun, through play, yeah. through serendipitous discovery? And the answer is yes. And now we have someone who's bringing this avenue of it uh, to, to light and to give it life and form. And so well done, Megan. Thank yeah. you very much. Fantastic. Well, uh, the link's in the show notes as normal for her book, Tabletop Role-Playing Therapy, A Guide for the Clinician Game Master. So check that out. And if you appreciate what we're doing here at the Science of Psychotherapy, we would love for you to come across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. And become part of the tribe. Absolutely. Come join us. Come be part of the team. And you can take on any persona you wish. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, thanks, Richard. And thanks, everybody, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.